I remember always waiting for my dad to come get me and he never showed up. I'm only here today because be it heaven, be it hell, wherever he is, wherever he's watching from, I didn't want him waiting on me to show up. I said, that's the only reason I'm here. And I walked off. Welcome to Noah Kagan Presents. What's up, you sexy people? It's your boy, Shalom, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. Today, we're back with part dose of J.T. McCormick, the CEO and president of BookinABox.com, and how he went from being homeless to becoming a millionaire. If you haven't checked out part one yet, hit that rewind button. You know you want to and check it out. In part two, we figured out how the hell did JT do all this stuff? So first, how was JT able to run a multi-million dollar software company, but he knows very little bit about computers? And second, how JT works on his mindset to always get what he wants. He's always stupendous. And third, how discipline changed his life. He had some people in his life that instilled some discipline and how that impacted him and what you can do for yourself with discipline. You're going to learn this and a bunch more. Enjoy. And after you listen to this episode or right now, can you go and spend 30 seconds and leave me an honest review of what you think of the show on your favorite podcast app like iTunes, Overcast, Nokia, whatever the hell you want. I'd really appreciate it. Even if it's less than five stars, don't do it. No, seriously, if it's less than five stars, I love reading it, what you guys think and how I can improve. Enjoy. I grew up, I would say privileged, like I have three great parents, good schools. All my friends went to college. A lot of my friends sold companies. Like that was the expected norm. But if your upbringing was like traveling a bunch, different parents, juvenile, abuse, all this stuff. You know, I'm curious, like what others can learn from that. And like, what do you think helped you rise above? I mean, a lot of people would want to say they want the work ethic, but I mean, if they're in tough environments like that, I'm not sure how they come up. I'll say this right now. One of the greatest passions for me as well is giving back to that low economic community, not just white, not just black, anyone in the lower economic community. For me growing up, there were three options, rapper, athlete, drug dealer. Those were your options out of the hood. Hell no. (laughs) (laughs) When you really consider this, Noah, it's even worse for girls because there's not a lot of female rappers. There's some. There's a few female athletes. Just as hard to be a a male athlete as a female athlete. In fact, I would say a little harder as a female because at least if you're a male, you can play football. So there's another avenue out. And then drug dealer. You don't see a lot of female drug dealers. So when you look as those are your three options out of the hood, no one, no one bastards did not tell us of the fourth option, which is business. No one said you could be a pharmaceutical sales rep. No one said that you can sell stocks and securities and be a financial planner on Wall Street. No one said you can be an entrepreneur. So I have this incredible obligation responsibility that I want to go back to these lower economic communities and let people know, hey, there's this fourth option out there. It is called business. You can do this. You can do this. You don't know what you don't know. And so that became very important for me to want to give back to the community. Because like I said, you you just, you don't know what you don't know. Unfortunately, in the hood, you don't know a whole lot. And so the fact that there's mountains in Portland, you don't know that. The fact, one of the life-changing areas for me, when I lived in Houston at the age 9, 10, and I got to drive through River Oaks and see houses bigger than the housing projects I lived in, I thought, holy shit, this is incredible. But I never knew that existed. I never knew $25 million homes existed and one family lived there. So in the hood, you don't know what you don't know. So that said, 
I'm personally convinced that the great majority of the people in low economic circumstances want out. You just don't always know how to get out. I am curious, is there any story that you put in the book or not in the book that was kind of wilder from your youth? The stories are so unreal. The harshest story that, that's in there, because I still tear up when I tell the story, the harshest story in that book, the hardest story that I swore it was going to go into a safe, chains around it, bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, never to be spoke of, was the time that I was in Houston at a weekly rent motel. I was nine years old. First time I was away from my mother and I was with my dad and his prostitute girlfriend and my six-month-old half-sister. I don't know where my dad was that day. We got left at the motel, me and my six-month-old half-sister, and her mom was out prostituting. So I'm there with my six-month-old half-sister. She's in a diaper, weekly rent motel, and she's crying. And I'm nine years old. It's the first time I had been away from my mother. I don't know what to do with a six-month-old child to get them to stop crying. No clue. She cries. She cries. She keeps crying. And I remember I threw her on the couch, six-month-old baby. And the minute she left my arms, I just, even now, I feel the regret, the pain. What the hell are you doing? And I felt like a monster. Like, what am I doing? Ran over, picked her up. She's screaming. She's crying. And that's not the worst part of the story. The worst part of the story is shortly thereafter, my dad's girlfriend shows up with a guy, a paying customer. She tells me and my half-sister to get out of the motel room so she can go in the back and do her business with the guy. So I'm walking around this weekly rent motel parking lot in Houston in July, hot, humid. My sister's crying. I'm crying. I don't know what to do. That for me was one of the harshest stories in there because it personally affected me. And I remember having to face my sister at my dad's funeral. And I told her the story. I told her about that. She forgave me. She goes, why are you so upset about it? I go, because I feel bad. And she goes, wasn't your fault. We know how our mother was. We know who she was. And that wasn't your fault. And so she somewhat forgave me. So I felt, I guess, a little bit better for it as well. That's one of the harshest stories in there for me personally. And then obviously there's a bunch of other ones of my dad and things that he's done and things that I've witnessed. So I feel like kids nowadays, like my parents took my iPad. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I hate you, dad. Right. I'm like, you know, I got kicked out of the room because my mom had to do her business. It's definitely a little bit harsh. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, no problem. I, you know, my dad had 23 children. 23 confirmed. You know, so God only knows how many are out there that we don't know about. But yeah, 23 of us. And I uh, didn't find out exactly how many there were until I went back to the funeral. When I left, I knew he had 18. So he ended up having five more that at least we know about. What was the funeral like? Having not been back to Dayton in 30 years, I hadn't seen my family members. The person who was in the casket, I didn't know that man. It's not the man I knew. I knew my dad from a well-dressed pimp and hustler and was nice to everyone. So the person who was laying in the casket, I didn't know who that was. The funeral itself was very interesting to me. I remember they had to slide open the back doors because so many people showed up. My image of my father is not a positive one. The greatest memory I have of my dad is not showing up. He used to call and say, tell my mom, hey, get him dressed. I'm coming to get him. And I would stand in front of the window for hours waiting for this man and he never show up. 
So that's my memory of him. So I'm at the funeral and there's a ton of old school 70s pimps that are there. At the funeral, they say, okay, anybody who wants two minutes can come up to the microphone and to share your story, whatever. So I'm sitting there, sitting there, and these these pimps are giving these incredible stories. My dad's nickname was Booby. And they would say, oh, yeah, Booby taught me the game. He taught me how to hustle. He taught me, you know, pimping and, and how to dress. And they had all these incredible stories of my dad. I didn't. And so I'm sitting there. I'm like, this is some bullshit. And so none of my family got up and said anything nice about my dad. They didn't get up and say anything. And I was kind of taken by it. I'm like, okay, is anybody going to go? So I'm like, hey, I haven't been back to Dayton in 30 years. Damn it. I'm paying for this. I'm going to go say something. And I went up there and I said to everyone, I said, this is incredible. It's really awesome to see the great memories so many of you have of my dad. And I said, I'm one of 23. And everyone laughed because they they knew he had 23 kids. I go, but I'm going to share a different side. I don't have these positive memories you all are speaking about. I went on to say what I remember about my dad and people were a little shocked. And when I walked off, I did not expect this. People started clapping. People just understood that maybe they had these great memories The way I closed it out with my little two minutes was I said, look, I remember always waiting for my dad to come get me and he never showed up. I'm only here today because be it heaven, be it hell, wherever he is, wherever he's watching from, I didn't want him waiting on me to show up. I said, that's the only reason I'm here. And I walked off and people started clapping and yeah, it was hard. I cried. I was upset, but it's what it is. How did you feel after that? Did you feel like, all right, I'm at peace with him? Or did you already feel like that earlier? I I had already had that peace. I never called my father as I became more successful. Never wanted to say, hey, look what I've done. Look at my accomplishments. Never did any of that. I was at at peace. Truth be told, it upset my mother more than it it did me. You know, she says, "I, I had different memories of your father than you do. I was already at peace. I went to, I guess, closure is pretty much it, okay? I never really knew. Was he alive? Is he dead? I didn't know. 30 years had gone by. It was closure. The one great piece that I got out of it is rekindled a relationship with my half-brother, my little brother that I got left with in one of the stories in the book. I taught to potty. I potty trained him. That's been great. So he and I communicate all the time and that's been really good. I was asked this question recently. Would I change anything of my childhood? No. The only things that I would change would not be for me. I would change that my mother would not had to have struggled as much. And I would have changed that my three half brothers and sisters didn't have to go through the hell they went through. I mean, I went through some hell, but they went through a whole different hell than I went through. Where did they end up? Uh, Anything from foster care to separated to living in abandoned homes putting their food in a trash can with snow to keep it cold. I mean, they went through hell. So where are they now? And like, how did you get to where you are? And and I don't know where they are. They're still in Ohio. My uncle said this to me. The greatest thing that ever happened to me was I got out of Dayton, Ohio. And when I got to go to San Antonio with my mother, we struggled. I mean, it was still still very much a struggle. We, We didn't have a lot. But being out of Dayton very much helped me. I can't say for sure. I'll be fair. I would have ended up a drug dealer dead in prison if I would have stayed in Dayton. I had another younger brother that he got caught up in the drug game so much that 
they cut his hands off and set him on fire on the side of a highway when they killed him because he got into the drug game pretty heavy. One of my brothers and I talk about you're on a different level when they start cutting your hands off and torching you on fire on the side of a highway. Not like in the woods somewhere on the side of a highway. So yeah, I would have gone down that path. I'm just very fortunate that I listened to my dad talk about business and the hustle, and I was able to transfer it to the actual business world. One of the weekends my dad actually did come pick me up, we're at the grocery store. We're walking down the frozen food aisle. I have no clue why, but this little girl walks by that I know from school and she goes, hi, Javon. And I don't say anything to her. I kind of drop my head like I'm shy. And out of nowhere, I feel this massive blow to the back of my head and my face hits the ground. My nose starts bleeding. And next thing I know, I'm pinned up against the frozen food door with a forearm in my neck and my dad's staring at me. And he says, I don't care who it is. You say hello and you speak to everyone. You show everyone respect and you say hello. Man, know it to this day, I talk to everybody. And that lesson stuck with me. Now, not the lesson the way I want to teach my kids, <laughs> but I do want them to have that lesson to speak to everyone. I say hello to everyone. In fact, I treat people in the service industry, waiters, hotel cleaning staff, I treat them better than C-suite executives. You got enough people kissing your ass. You don't need me to contribute to that. But we have a tendency to overlook the service industry. And those people do so much for the economy, life. And so I, I, I tend to treat those people far better than any C-suite executive. Well, so with your dad's story and I'm the... Uh, so one, for all my Dayton listeners out there, I mean, I, I don't want to lose <laughs> all... <laughs> <laughs> uh, we just lost another one. So all my two Dayton listeners, I want to apologize. Never insult Ohio again, except LeBron. Is the answer if people are in, struggling in a tough time, besides, you know, your mom sounds like she was supportive and, and to love you and, and helped out, but is it to like change your geography? It's not always change your geography. You heard me say this at the very beginning. There's a McDonald's in the hood. You want to put in the work ethic to go in and take that job? Do you want to put in the time? Do you want to put in the effort? Do you want to put in the sacrifice? I've had people come at me, oh, you don't know. You don't. <laughs> Yeah, actually I do. And you have to put in the effort. You have to start somewhere. If it's starting at minimum wage, then damn it, you got to start at minimum wage. No one set out to run the Boston Marathon, woke up one morning and ran 26.2 miles. They took a step. Everything takes a step. It's a mindset. If you tell yourself, okay, I'm going to have to put in this grind for the next three months, and then I'm going to ask for a promotion. I've built a career out of asking questions. Man, I'll ask for anything. All you can say is no. Maybe you say F no. Fact of the matter is, for me, no just means not right now. I'm coming back. I'm going to ask you again. And so I don't have a fear of rejection. Three words that I've eliminated from my vocabulary, hope, wish, and luck. When I was a kid and I was at school and I said, man, I hope there's something neat when I get home, didn't make anything appear. When I was at home and we were sitting there and I said, oh, I wish we had dinner, didn't make anything appear. And then luck, the lady who just won the 700 million Powerball, you'll hear people say, oh, she was lucky. No, she wasn't. She bought a ticket. <laughs> so th there is no, no, no luck. So I don't do those three words. If you want to make something happen, it's going to have to come with great sacrifice. Maybe it's time away from your kids. Maybe it's time away from the things you want to do. 
but you made a joke earlier and I laugh about this. So many people want to succeed. So many people either want to become an executive or they want wealth or they want fame, whatever it is. But while I'm studying, some people are watching the Game of Thrones and I'm blown away by this. We celebrate binge watching in our country now. Like that's a term, binge watching. You will actually speak with people who will say, oh, would you this weekend? Oh, man. Friday is six o'clock to Sunday at 9 p.m. We watch Game of Thrones episodes one through 38 all weekend. We didn't leave the house. Okay. Well, while you're doing that, I'm studying leadership, scale, business, investments. You got to sacrifice somewhere. And don't get me wrong, binge watching, great, do your thing, but only when you are where you want to be in life because you can't complain about where you want to be and not be doing the things you need to do to get to where you want to be. I'm blown away by our country. Every year, we celebrate on TV people who stand in line 24 hours for the new iPhone that does two things new that the old shit that you already have does. And we have the audacity as a society to put this individual on camera who has been out there the longest, who comes out of the store first. Why? (laughs) I do not understand this whatsoever. I don't get it. Either I'm incredibly dumb or basic, but I don't understand why we celebrate this individual for standing in line 24, 36 hours to buy something new that does two more things than what you already had. On the flip side of that, I I guess I was wondering, like, who was your role model when you were younger? Because you did have your dad, but as you got to San Antonio and and Texas, who who was the person that was like, yo, here's your path? Or did you have someone? Role models, mentors, opportunities, learning, it's everywhere. You know, you've watched me walk into your office. I pay attention. I look around. I ask you questions. I want to learn. It's nonstop. I constantly want to know, how can I get better? There were individuals, there was no one mentor. There were individuals that I came across that I studied, paid attention, asked questions, just absorbed anything I could get from this individual. One of the ones that was very influential, it was a black executive at Nationwide Insurance. I know he wouldn't remember me from anybody. He probably doesn't even know I I worked there. But every time I saw this individual, if someone asked him how he was doing, he would say, tremendous. And I thought, huh, he never says anything else. Like I would like try to linger around just to hear someone else ask him to see if he gave a different answer. <laughs> and he would always say tremendous. And I found it fascinating even to this day. You did this this morning. You asked me, how am I? I said, excellent. Always excellent. What I have found is why be negative? It does nothing. If I tell you I'm excellent, I'm always positive. I'm always engaging. There's no need to sit there and say, oh man, you know, I'm doing okay. Or I can't stand people that say, thank God it's Friday. Thank God it's Tuesday. Thank God I got a job. (laughs) You know, it it makes no sense to me. So the gentleman that I work for, Mr. Gentry, man, I, I loved Mr. Gentry. He owned payday loan companies, but you know, he cracked the door. No one ever gave me an opportunity. People cracked the door for me and I created my own opportunity. I hear a lot of people say, oh, well, who gave you an opportunity? Nobody gave me shit. A couple of people cracked the door and I went in and created an opportunity for myself. 
those are a couple influential people. And then just paying attention to my surroundings. How do people shake hands? How do people look each other in the eye? I've been called Uncle Tom. I've been called sellout. I've been told, oh, you speak white. Still haven't figured out what that is. There's articulate and there's ghetto. I wonder if your upbringing was like switched, like you were raised by my Jewish parents. <laughs> it's an experience. I'm curious, like if you would still have this hustle and this drive and this need to like want to succeed and prove yourself and be independent. I wonder where that would be today. With you. You, you know, one of my greatest struggles now is as a parent, it really scares the hell out of me that how do I provide everything to my children and teach them to appreciate it? The greatest appreciation that I have for some of the material things or the financial security that I have comes from the fact that I did not have these things. I struggle with how do I give my kids everything and teach them to appreciate it? The work ethic, the hustle, the drive. I struggle with that because I ask myself that exact same question. Had I not come from where I come from, would I have this work ethic? Would I have this drive? Would I have this desire to always succeed and want to get better, you know, I want them to see what it's like to do a hard day's work, to understand that I make the comment that no one will outwork me, but don't confuse outwork me being results driven versus work harder than me, because there is a hell of a lot of people who work harder than me. When I leave and I, I see those individuals out there building houses and they get there at six in the morning and they don't leave until 8 p.m. And sometimes they'll flip their cars around and put the headlights on the house so they can keep building or laying landscape in 103 degree heat here in Texas. Oh man, they all work harder than me. I outwork individuals. I'm results driven. What results am I driving? And that's really what I, I want to drive for my children to take away from me because God knows it ain't going to be spelling or math. <laughs> <laughs> when I was broke and I would hear someone say, money is the root of all evil. I have never seen a rich person rob 7-Eleven. Never seen that happen. Don't get me wrong. There's some evil in money or you hear the comment, more money, more problems. I did not know what that meant until you have a little bit of money and all of a sudden you need an estate planner and you need a will. And I did not know what any of that stuff was, but you obviously want to protect your money. You want to set your family up. You want to make sure things are in order. But when I was broke, they have more money, more problems. I'm like, well, give me those problems. <laughs> Sign me up for those problems. When you don't have options, money provides options. Because if you don't have enough money, your kids just go to the public school in what district you live in, period. There you go. You may sit back and say to yourself, oh, man, I wish I could send my kids here. I wish I could do this for my kids. And so you just do a bunch of wishing, which produces nothing. And so when you do have a little bit of money, now you've got these options. I've struggled with the options that money brings. We'll do like a 10-year episode. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll do one as they get older. All right. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you liked the second part with JT McCormick. JT was nice enough to drop some knowledge bombs with us. So go say what's up to him in Twitter world at real JT McCormick and at his company, bookinabox.com. Next, go tell a friend you love him. Say, yo, man, I'm inspired. Let's go get our hustle on. Have a great day. What's your favorite song this year? <laughs> <laughs>